Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, September 4th. I'm Andrew Walworth. It used to be that Labor Day was considered the real start of the presidential race when kids went back to school and voters turned their attention to politics. But 2020 is not just any year, and the political season seems to have been in full bloom for some time now. But now that September is finally here, we will be seeing more of the candidates on the road, more commercials, more charges and countercharges from the campaign. Join me to discuss the race, the polls, the strategies for this final push to the White House are some of my colleagues from Real Clear Politics. Tom Bevin is co-founder and president. Carl Cannon is Washington Bureau Chief. And Sean Trende is Senior Elections Analyst. So, Tom, let me start with you. There was a classic pop song by The Happenings, 1966. It's Will I See You in September? Carl may remember it. I don't know about the <laughs> Uh, Joe Biden apparently has said yes. He was in Kenosha on Wednesday. He spoke in Pittsburgh earlier this week. And he's already announced that he will be in Michigan next week. Um, What do you make of his appearances so far? Are there any surprises here? And are the Democrats just running the game plan they intended? Or are they playing defense? Well, he visited Wisconsin, which is, you know, (laughs) Democrats are still wondering why Hillary Clinton never visited that state in 2016. So we checked that off the list. I do think he was motivated to to abandon his basement strategy earlier than they would have otherwise done. I think the Democrats were perfectly happy uh, having him let Trump be the story. But I think as coming out of the convention, the Republican convention, um, I do think they were worried that after they didn't mention the violence, uh, you know, for Biden not to come out and say something, not to get out of the basement. Uh, was was hurting them politically. And and if they didn't address it soon, it would metastasize into even a worse political problem for them. So they did the Pittsburgh speech and the visit to Kenosha. Um, and as you mentioned, it seems like, uh, you know, they're going to be doing more events. And so the campaign is really joined now. And we'll, we, we will see uh, how that works out. You know, we've gotten a little bit of polling data post conventions that shows I mean, depending on your perspective, it's it's maybe tightening in some places, maybe not so much in others. There are some bright spots for Trump among minority voters in some in some polls in some states, and not necessarily in others. So it's sort of a mixed bag at this point. I think we're still waiting to sort of get a clearer picture of of exactly how the public is digesting both the conventions and the the visits to Kenosha and the violence and the rioting uh, and the protests that have gone on. So, Sean, um, what do the polls tell us at this point? The RCP average has Biden up, I think, 7.2 points today nationally. Uh, but tell us about the battleground states and what what are you seeing in the polls? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We we had seen this steady kind of drip, drip, drip of polls can, uh, suggesting a tightening of the race. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, we just got this deluge of, I guess it was Wednesday, we got this just deluge of polls that were all, that were on balance, I think you'd say pretty good for Biden. But when you, when you really kind of got down into them and you did an apples to apples, like a lot of those polls actually showed tightening too, you know, so some of these polls that were showing eight point leads had been showing 12 point Biden leads uh, back in July. So I I do think one of the best rules when you want to know the true state of the race is to know, you know, look at what the parties are doing, not what they're saying. If we really were in a situation where Biden was up, eight, nine points, you know, up, you know, 11 in Arizona, like some of these polls are showing, I think he'd be running a very different campaign uh, than he's, than he's running right now. Something motivated him uh, to change uh, strategies a little bit. And I, I think you'd have to say, you know, their, their polls are probably showing something a little bit 
more, uh, a little bit tighter uh, than, than what some of this national stuff is showing. And, w- and what about the battleground states? Yeah, the battleground states look better for Trump. Um, one of the things that I say is that when you see national polls, you have to subtract three or four points from them to get a real picture of where things are. Uh, because President Trump, as we know from from 2016, uh, can lose the popular vote by a fairly large amount and still win the Electoral College. Probably three or four points uh, is, you know, if, if he loses the popular vote by less than th- less or fewer, I don't know which it is, uh, I guess less than three percentage points. Um, and how many votes would that be? Oh, probably like uh, th- there's like 130 million votes that get cast. So mm. about four or five million votes, depending. Right. He can lose the popular vote by that margin and win the Electoral College. So, um, you know, we have seen closer. We've had some close close polls in, in Florida and Pennsylvania. So it's it's a little bit more. You'd be a little bit more bullish on Trump looking at the state polls. So, Carl, the White House seems to be running on law and order, uh, not the pandemic. Uh, there's an interesting piece on the on real clear politics this morning from Susan Glass or from New Yorker, saying that she's reviewed 11 ads that the Trump campaign aired, um, and the word coronavirus is never mentioned in a single one of them. Um, and she says, if, if uh, it's as if the pandemic and the economic crisis simply do not exist. Um, is this a fair characterization of their strategy and, and what do you make of it? Well, it's, I woke up and it was 1968. Um, but you know what? I'm, I'm making progress because before that it was 1918. So if we're Rip Van Winkle, we're coming out of it slowly. This, um, issue that Trump's running on, we tend to look at what politicians do and reverse engineer it. Oh, they're doing this because they're cynical about, you know, that. But these cities are in flames. Uh, a policeman shoots a man after a struggle in Wisconsin, and then in that same town, uh, in a dealership, auto dealership owned by an immigrant, you know, two hundred cars are burned. That's not Donald Trump's imagination. That happened, and it's alarming to people. So, in one sense, the president is simply talking about what's on people's minds. But in the other sense, he's talking about something where he sees not so much a strength for himself, but a weakness for the Democrats. Uh, Kamala Harris has, you know, personally encouraged people to bail out looters and rioters, bail them out of jail. And some of these people have been rearrested. So there's a vulnerability there that Trump detects. And plus, it's it's easier for him to talk about that than his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. He, he, he boasts about decisions he made, but he ignores other decisions he made. When he talks about the economy, what he'd hoped to be talking about during the general election was this Miracle, the American miracle the, that had employed record numbers of Hispanics and African Americans. Instead, he's, he's reduced to saying he built the economy up once he could do it again. That's a much less <laughs> powerful argument. So he's talking about an issue where he thinks the Democrats are vulnerable. Tom, what do you think? Well, I mean, I generally agree. You know, the coronavirus was, if you, I mean, the Democratic convention was all about Trump's handling of the coronavirus, or a lot of it was that, that was the indictment. Even Joe Biden's acceptance speech spent a good portion of time hitting Trump on coronavirus. And yet the Democrats are now playing, Joe Biden has been playing on the law and order ground for the last, you know, seven, 10 days. And so they're not talking about, I think, what they want to be talking about. As to the economy, we just got some numbers this morning. The unemployment rate is down to 8.4% and added another 1.4 million jobs in the month of August. And so 
there is a bit of a recovery happening now. Um, and he gets another report like that. If you look at his approval rating on the economy, it's still relatively strong and stable. He leads Biden. Uh, the economy still ranks as one of the top issues in the minds of voters. So I think the economy might come back into play as, a, as, as an asset for Trump, not a liability. Sean, let's turn to the minority vote, which um, is sort of a big focus these days. Um, we've got two pieces on uh, RCP this morning about the Latino vote. How important is the Latino vote this time around? They tend to vote Democratic. Are there enough Latino votes up for grabs to make a difference? And are they located correctly in the swing states? How do you view it? Yeah, we see we have a, a fairly robust amount of polling suggesting that Donald Trump uh, has made some inroads uh, with Latino or Hispanic voters. Um, the issue that I think people overlook is that the you know that that vote is not very uh, efficiently distributed. Uh, if, if you look at the true swing states. Um, you know, yeah, there's, there, there's some of it in, you know, obviously in, in Florida, they're not as large as you'd think. Um, in Texas, you know, the Hispanic vote, the Hispanic population is large, but the Hispanic vote, uh, doesn't keep up with that because a lot of, uh, voters, a lot of potential voters in his, in Texas aren't registered. And then Arizona, again, not as big of a share as you'd think. And so the, the long and short of it is to, to really get something out of the Hispanic vote, you know, Republicans would have to be getting up to like 40, 50 percent. And to really start flipping states with the Hispanic vote, uh, Democrats would have to reduce Donald Trump probably below uh, 20%, um, especially since the Hispanic vote in Florida tends, you know, there's a large Cuban population and that just operates a little differently. So I, I think the, the issue with Donald Trump's appeal with the Hispanic vote has, is more informative along the lines that, that people don't really get what motivates the Hispanic vote right. It's not necessarily the identity angle. Uh, it's, it's the same thing that, that all Americans, that most Americans say motivates them to vote things like jobs, the economy, uh, and so forth. Immigration consistently ranks relatively low uh, on Hispanic votes, uh, Hispanic voters motivating factors. Can I just jump in here, Andy, and, and add to what Sean was saying, which is that um, in this latest Quinnipiac poll that came out just, just this week in Florida, Trump's approve, uh, his, his support among Hispanics is at 45% and Biden is at 43%. So he's actually leading Biden among Hispanics. That's a 12-point jump since Quinnipiac's last poll. And I think that has to do a lot with uh, the Cuban-American community. You saw uh, one of the one of the star speakers of the RNC was Maximo Alvarez, this uh, Cuban American business uh, man who talked about his his journey and travels. I think that the Trump campaign is really, I think, aggressively pursuing Hispanic voters, and at least in the case of Florida, it looks like it's paying off. Yeah, so I was looking, I was looking at the same poll. This is the Quinnipiac uh, poll, and Trump received twenty eight percent of the Hispanic vote four years ago. Uh, this poll showed him at 36%. Um, and in the same poll, he was behind uh, Biden by 10% in the overall survey. So the high watermark uh, for Republicans with Hispanics was 44% in 2004. George W. Bush got that, um, obviously won that election. Carl, is it wrong to think of the Hispanic vote as a block at this point? I mean, it's so large. There's so many different parts to it. Is it starting to look more like general picture of America and less and less like a specific uh, cohort? Well, that's actually a good question, um, Andy. We 
we, you know, people talk about the Catholic vote and the Catholic vote, you know, is if you think about it, it's the American vote because it's, they, they vote the way, you know, there's so many 23% voters, Roman Catholic, and you know, Trump and Hillary split them about evenly. We think there were exit polls that night that showed Trump maybe got her carried the Catholic vote by one percentage point or two, but then the, there were later analysis that showed, no, maybe Hillary won by one or two, which was her national margin. Hispanics are like that, but Sean Trendy made an important point, which is that not only they're not monolithic, they vary from state to state and they vary from group to group. You know, I went uh, a year ago to Orlando. We Everybody was pursuing this idea that this influx of Puerto Ricans in central Florida would tip Florida uh, the Democrats way. Um, and, but it's not that because Puerto Ricans are American citizens, they can vote if they live in a legally in a state, they live predominantly in New York and Florida. And you take a County like Polk County, Florida, which was, you know, two or 3% Hispanic when, when Ronald Reagan ran, uh, it's now 23% Latino and increasingly not Cuban, but Mexican American Puerto Ricans are the more recent immigrants. You talk to people down there, you don't get, it's not neatly divided. Oh, these are, they're not African-Americans. They're not a monolithic Democratic vote. There was a woman there uh, in a are you story. Jo- who are you, Joe Biden? Is yeah. That you said? <laughs> yeah <there's- laughs> Didn't he get in trouble for saying that, Carl? Yeah, but I'm not running, so I can say <laughs> in Well, what I mean by the black vote is a, is a black vote for Democrats, and the Hispanic vote isn't, but I'm saying it. We're not talking about all the same people. There was there's a woman there named uh, Martha Santiago. She told the Associated Press. I came across this story in January. Um, she said, you know, she moved to Florida. She's Puerto Rican. There were very few Puerto Ricans now there. Then when she moved, now there's a lot. And she said, in Puerto Rico, politics are very important for the people. It's the number one thing people talk about. And then the punchline is said Santiago, a Republican who supports Trump. So, <laughs> right. It's you can't take these votes for granted. And I think in Florida, most especially people are voting on the economy. Yeah, just to bounce off that even a little more, because I think this is really important stuff. You know, if we're saying Trump wins 25 percent or 30 percent of the Hispanic vote, you know, that that you, you turn that into like odds or fractions. And that means that, like, if you took a random sample of of Hispanics, like one out of every four of them or one out of every three of them will be Trump voters. You know, that that's a lot of Trump voters in, in that community still. And not only that, but if you actually talk to Hispanics, if you poll them, you know, th- this Hispanic category at the end of the day is a political label. It's not one that is like people who are Hispanic tend to refer to themselves as Puerto Rican or Brazil or, or Argentinian or El Salvadorian or, or whatever. Just like someone who's white would likely say, if you ask them who they, you know, about their ancestry, they'd say, oh, I'm Italian or German or whatever. And so that political label of Hispanic covers up an awful lot of granularity when you get down below the, the label. Well, let's turn to the black vote for a second, because uh, this Fox poll came out this week, which was generally bad news for Trump, but it did have him earning uh, 19% job approval from black voters, uh, which is double the 8% um, support he had uh, last time around. Um, John, how important is that? And is the black vote, Carl seems to think it's monolithic. Uh, Do you? and? I think I'll put myself down as a dissenting vote on that, just for the record. But what do you think? 
So there's a lot going on there. When, when you look at how African-Americans vote, or, or I guess we've gone back to black, uh, but capitalized, which actually I've capitalized black for about a decade. I think that's actually ultimately the right call. But when you, when you look at the black vote, um, yeah, look, 96% of black voters voted for Barack Obama. Uh, in 2008, and and it was 93%, I think, in 2012. The best a Republican has done uh, in recent times is is to get some, I don't think they've gotten into the teens since maybe Nixon or, or even Eisenhower before him. Maybe Ford got into the teens, but re- regardless, you know, it's not it's not a, a very swingy vote. I'll say that. With that said, you know you do the math, and if you say ten percent of of blacks vote for uh, Republicans, that means one out of every ten um, is a Republican voter. So when you look at it that way, you say, okay, this this is actually sub- substantial. You know, we're talking about about three million black voters for Republicans. I think what we're seeing though. Uh, is a little bit of a reversion to mean among younger blacks, especially uh, younger black males. This is something that started to show up in the polls in 2012 uh, and, and seems to have continued that you don't, as you get away from the the generation that went through the civil rights struggle uh, and you get to their children and then especially grandchildren and, and increasingly even great-grandchildren, if you want to feel old, you know, you, there's not the same level of attachment to the Democratic Party. Still talking overwhelmingly Democratic, uh, but, you know, something like an 80-20 split and not a 90-10 split, uh, which down the road can certainly be significant. Well, you know, in, in 1960, Richard Nixon, we, we weren't as good at counting and exit polling as we are now, but the, the, Richard Nixon lost to John F. Kennedy in a razor-thin election. It is estimated that Nixon won 32% of the black vote. So that's 1960. By 1964, Barry Goldwater is is saying, we're not going to get the Negro vote as a block in 1964 and 68, so we ought to go hunting where the ducks are. Well, that message was received. And my, my own view is that Donald Trump, of all people, sees that that's unsustainable and that, that those votes are there for the asking, but you have to ask for them. And at his, at his convention, I thought President Trump made the most overt and you know honest appeal for African-American votes. He had all these speakers up there, starting with Tim Scott, and they took these issues on directly. They said flatly, Donald Trump's not a racist. People say that are playing you. Here, here's what he's done for the community. That's a sea change. I don't know if it'll work, and I don't know if he's the candidate that can take advantage of it. But 1960 shows you what can happen. And as Sean was alluding to, a lot of the people who voted for Nixon in, 60, in 1960, they had been Republicans. The African-Americans had been Republicans since Reconstruction, reversed itself during Franklin Roosevelt's administration. But there were still people there who thought of the Republican Party as the party of Lincoln and the party of emancipation. And it, I, if you have a Republican leader who wants to engage this point and say, our ideas are actually better for the African-American community, here's why, and spend some time and money doing it, I think there are votes to be had. Tom, do you think it's a real change or is it a cynical ploy? Is it every four years you sort of do this and then you sort of forget about it? Or do you think the Republican Party really is going to make a change? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, you look back to 2012 and you remember Paul Ryan wanted to go uh, campaign in inner city communities and and the Romney campaign was like, no, we're not wasting our time and energy now. They were running against Barack Obama. So that's a different scenario, right? Um, than, Than the current scenario. But I do think Trump has, I mean, his his appeal has been 
pretty consistent over time. Uh, and he has delivered on a number of things that are important to, to African-Americans. And so, and I do look, so I agree. Um, there are votes to be had in these communities. And you look at this, this young African-American woman, Kim Klasik, who's running in Baltimore, who's become this sort of rising star because she's, you know, cut this ad where she's walking the streets talking about how, uh, you know, Democrats have basically failed uh, inner cities like Baltimore and, and other places. And she said, you know, I'm not sure she said it in the ad, but said in an interview, you know, the reason that Republicans don't get more than 3% or 5% in some of these neighborhoods, in some cases in Philadelphia, there are precincts where they get no votes, 0%, is because they don't campaign. They literally, nobody knows any Republican who lives there. Uh, they just aren't a presence at all. So there's no one to make the argument. There's no one to to plead the case uh, as to why their their party or policies might be better. So I do think there is a, a change. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, it's going to have to be something that, that happens over time. But as far as this election goes, uh, look, it, if Trump is able to move the needle with African-Americans, even a couple of percentage points in these swing states um, and or uh, you know, younger African-American voters, as Sean was talking about, I think older African-Americans are, are really locked into Biden. They, they saved his candidacy. They will turn out and vote for him. But if younger African-American voters in Philadelphia and Detroit and Milwaukee stay home, decide, you know, they don't have enough enthusiasm for Biden to get out and or, you know, do vote by mail or whatever it's going to be um, in a close election, that that could make a huge amount of difference. That's what happened to a certain degree in 2016. It could happen again here. And I would also say, by the way, as far as the, the strategy goes in, in terms of appealing to, to African-Americans, it does have this residual effect among white voters, moderates, suburban women. They don't want to vote for a racist. And to have Herschel Walker and other blacks up there saying, I've known Trump for 30, 40 years. He's not a racist. Trust me. I know what racism looks like. I grew up in the Deep South. I think that has a resonance not just with black voters, but with some white voters as well. Uh, we can't. Leave the week without talking about Nancy Pelosi. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> to a rich story. It's one of those anecdotes that sort of caught fire, crystallizes a general perception, I think, among certain people, at least. Um, Carl, what happened? Why is it important or is it not important? I know that you were, uh, uh, were on the record this week saying that you didn't think it was a big story, but I think it is. What, what do you think? Well, um, I, I, I've been thinking about that, Andy, and I'm People keep reminding me of George W. H. W. Bush looking at his watch during a debate. Um, I don't. It's not a big story. It's a trivial story. But is it as is it a symbolic story? Does it does it explain the frustrations that um, some voters have with Democrats? And I think it does. Uh, Nancy Pelosi got her hair done, and she apparently found a her a stylist who, who she knows who said, "Yeah, I, I can get you in," um, and she didn't. You know, the, the pictures that came out of her without a mask, well, she didn't need a mask because she was alone in there. That wasn't really the issue. The issue was, do, do people get special treatment? Uh, the owner of that salon thought that Nancy Pelosi was getting special treatment and she, her business has been decimated and she put out this, she filmed it and sent it to Fox News and said, look, uh, you know, one standard for Nancy Pelosi and one, you know, for the rest of the world. Please don't bring Marie Antoinette into it because she gets a bad rap. We can talk about her on another another time, but she never said let them eat cake. I just want to get that out there before anybody says that. But I, you know what? It was a it was a sign of the times. And there's this there's this there's this idea out there that 
the rich or well-connected can, can, you know, gain the system and the rest of us can't. And in that sense, it, it was resonant. So I, I guess I the revised and extended my remarks on that. <laughs> but Tom, she, she went on to sort of not take responsibility, but to blame the uh, owner of the salon and uh, said she was set up, which... Uh, very Marion Barry-esque, wasn't it? Yes, I was going to say Marion Barry, the uh, <laughs> former mayor of, New, uh, of Washington, D.C., who was set up... Uh, he was going to say the quote. Uh, I was <laughs> the bitch set me up. The bitch yeah, set me yeah. up. Yeah, he was doing something a little bit uh, worse than getting his haircut at the time. But <clears throat> cocaine what, and I, prostitutes is worse than. <laughs> I think it was crack, wasn't he? Smoking a crack pipe. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. listen. I think Carl's right. It's a it's a small story, uh, trivial story, but but not an unimportant story in the sense that it reinforces the biases that already exist. Right? Republicans think it's a, a big story. Democrats think it's a nothing burger. How do independents process this? Do they? Does it resonate with them as a, as a you know example of of elitist double standards? I, I don't know. I'm not sure it's going to have much effect. But <clears throat> a lot of times these are not these stories are not significant in and of themselves. They're simply just tiny little pebbles that you know add up over time. And if we see another couple of examples like this in the next uh, you know two months, then yeah, it could it could have a resonance uh, with, with voters when they go and pull levers. Sean, how do you view it? So I, I don't think it matters directly for 2020. The way I think it matters is this. Like, I, I don't think most people, and it's important for political journalists to keep in mind, like, I don't think most people follow the day-to-day uh, that much. But that doesn't mean that they aren't updating in the background, right? Like, we see a piece of political news and we focus on it, we dissect it, you know, we turn it inside out, whatever. Most people, I think, see a news thing and like in their in the back of their minds, their their kind of worldview gets ticked one way or another. Uh, and so, honestly, I don't think this matters for 2020. I, I think it matters for trust in institutions um, because most people see this story and it's like, okay, my cynicism, just like everything about Barack Obama for a lot of people, like tick the cynicism meter down, like this ticks it up. And it just kind of reinforces a worldview that, that frankly is a worldview that's conducive to someone like Trump uh, in the long term that, you know, at the end of the day, our leaders aren't in it for us. You know, they're in it for themselves and they'll break the rules and bend it for themselves when need be. It's it's kind of like the story about the modeler who shut the world down in the UK. And then it turns out that he was sneaking out of the house uh, to go meet up with another man's wife. And it's like, OK, <laughs> that uh, I don't know too much, but I'm pretty sure that's the opposite of social distancing. Um, and, and yet, and yet, you know, maybe they were reading poetry to each other from across the room with masks on. I don't know, but, um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that's, uh, ultimately, uh, the way it matters is just kind of fomenting a sense of cynicism. I'll also say as kind of a closing thought, when I saw Nancy Pelosi's response, which is like, yeah, I think the hairdresser should, uh, re- should apologize to me. Like if you told me Donald Trump had said that, I would totally believe you. Um, there's a very Trumpy energy with the way Nancy Pelosi is handling this. Um, she also did it back in, I think May when she was calling Trump fat. Uh, so I, I do wonder, and I hope it's not the case, but I I do wonder if some of Trump's, you know, people are taking the lesson from, from Trump that like, yeah, you, you can, this is the way to handle crises, kind of tweet through it and blame the other side. 
Well, nobody apologizes for anything anymore, and that predates Trump. But I agree, with you. it's just sort of gone to a, ne- a next level as opposed to just not apologizing. It's it's you know attacking the person and saying they owe you know I, me apologize. Why would I apologize? They need to apologize to me. It was pretty jarring. I thought uh, it reminds me. Uh, Sean has reminded me. Uh, I once called Jerry Falwell, the original Jerry Falwell, uh, I uh, plump in a story I wrote. Um, this is many 20 years ago. I think I said he was portly or I think I called him the portly pastor or something. Anyway, Falwell ran into me the next day. This was at a Republican convention and said, you called me fat. And he said it with a straight face. And I was a little taken aback. And I started stammering something like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. And he said, well, let me ask you something. Isn't truth still a defense to libel? And then, <laughs> and then he cracked up. He said, oh, I'm just busting your chops, man. <laughs> that was the old man. That was Jerry Falwell. Not like Jerry Falwell Jr. and not like Nancy Pelosi that's or Donald whole, Trump. That's a whole other uh, episode of the podcast, Carl. Talk about Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, well, guys, I think um, we're going to have to leave it right yeah, here. Uh, everyone can tune in next week. We'll be talking more about this. It's a very interesting time, and there's always a lot to talk about. Um, so I want to thank my guests this week, Sean Trendy, Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon. And this has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, September 4th. If you want to find out more, check out realclearpolitics.com. As ever, thank you for listening. And until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.